The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we are honored to have a very special guest with us, Dr. Jean Houston, who is one of my all-time favorite spiritual leaders. She is a scholar, philosopher, researcher in human capacities. She is one of the most foremost visionary thinkers and doers of our time and long regarded as one of the principal founders of the human potential movement. Jean is a prolific author. Her books include Jump Time, Shaping Your Future in a World of Radical Change, and perhaps her best known and still loved, The Possible Human, A Course in Extending Your Physical, Mental, and Creative Abilities. Jean, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. It is so great to have you here. So where are you today? Today I'm in my home in Ashland, Oregon, oh. looking out over toward the Cascade Mountain Range. Oh, how lovely. It's a, Ashland's a beautiful place to be. It's one of the great towns in the world, you know, because although it's only 20,000 people, it's sort of like ancient Athens without the slaves. <laughs> we have art, you know, we have the great Oregon Shakespeare Festival, you know, the great theater, and we have music and uh, more mind and body workers per square block than any place in the world, and, and a real transitional town, a green town in which the people are really deeply devoted to the betterment of the town. Oh, what a lovely place to be. So let's talk about your, uh, how you even got involved in the work you do. You are so innovative. You are so inspiring to people around our own creative and our mm-hmm. own potential. When you moved into this kind of work as a young person you know, back in your 20s or so, what got you connected to this? Why were you interested in this? Well, it goes back a lot earlier. And, I, you uh-huh. know, when you just asked me that question, something popped in my head that I've never talked about. Uh-huh. And that my, my father was a comedy writer uh, oh, for really? Bob Hope and people like that. He's actually the guy who wrote the joke, Who's On First? Although, oh, frankly, I think yeah. it was he and three Jewish guys. <laughs> the nature of the joke. But I remember sitting in, a, in, in our home in, it must have been Hollywood, and uh, there we were all as little kids, you know, five, six years old with our, me with my long curls and, and with a big bow and my little friends sitting there with their, uh, in, in their shorts. And here are these big, huge comedy writers, and they are throwing punchlines back and forth at each other and roaring with laughter. Now, we kids, we didn't understand anything they were saying, but it was all funny, and we began to just laugh and laugh and laugh. But what we were able to observe was this tremendous creativity 
in which one guy would just activate another and activate another. And I saw in, you know, and I would see this tremendous efflorescence of comedy. Well, not too long after that, several years later, my father said to me once, hey, kid, you want to go talk to Charlie? Charlie was Charlie McCarthy, who was the dumbest oh. of Edgar Burke, and you're too young to remember that. But I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad was writing for Edgar Burke and Charlie McCarthy, and he was going to bring him a script. I said, oh, yeah, Daddy, let's go. So we go, and there's Bergen sitting just three quarters so we could see his face, but he couldn't see us. And he's talking to Charlie, his dummy. Well, my father, you know, figured, well, he's, you know, he's rehearsing. But he wasn't rehearsing. He was asking Charlie ultimate questions. Charlie, what does it mean to truly love? Charlie, where is the soul? You know, and this little dummy, this little wooden clacking jaws, was answering with the wisdom of the millennia. And my father, who was an agnostic Baptist, he couldn't stand this. And after a while, he coughed, and Bergen turned around, turned beet red, and said, Oh, hiya, Jack. Hello, Jeannie. You caught us. And my father said, Yeah, Ed, what in the world are you doing? He said, Well, I'm talking to Charlie. He's the wisest person I know. <laughs> my father said, But Ed, that's your mind. Those are your words coming out of that dummy's mouth. And Edgar Bergen said, Well, yes, I suppose ultimately it is. But you know when I ask him these questions, and he answers, I haven't got the faintest idea what he's going to say. It is so much deeper than anything I know. And I tell you, Cheryl, at that moment, I felt my whole future just sort of sizzle up in me so much more than we think we know. And I was almost at that moment, it was almost as if my road was set and I was determined to explore for the rest of my life so much more that we are, that we have within us the vast, vast treasure house of our human capacities. I, I think it began then. Wow. Well, you know, and that really speaks to what you support, which I've, I've listened to you over the years, and you, know, you really support us listening to that voice that we ignore so often, you know, and knowing that we don't know we know. But how to do it without having a dummy on your lap? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's a good twist of your own mind, you know. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, that, that is an amazing story. When you think about how young you were, how did you know, even at that age, to pay attention to that in yourself? Well, my dad always kept a notebook, and he made me keep a notebook. He said, kiddo, you see anything interesting or funny, write it down. And, uh, you know, it was a tremendous uh, possibility that really bloomed in me. I always, so it gave me powers of observation. Because if I heard anything funny, if I saw a bird with an interesting color fly off, I wrote it down. And that has perhaps helped me in my memory. And when I've looked at other people who had tremendous memories, people like, uh, well, Margaret Mead had the greatest memory I ever saw. She had a little, thick, little red book, and she generally for each for a month. And anything happened that she saw or heard or liked, whoop, out came the red book, and she wrote it down. And at the end of the day, she harvested her ideas. She harvested what she saw, so she did not lose the, the observations of her life. And that's what, what I've tried great, to do in my own small way. Well, and what a great tool. And, and how um, brilliant of your father to support you in that. I mean, you know, I hear parents sometimes of teenagers, oh, keep a journal, keep a journal. And, the, the, you know, the, the teenager says, oh, yuck. And yet, <laughs> even just framing it this way, you know, if there's something funny or something you really like, write it down, you know. And, and what a powerful tool. 
It is a powerful tool. And I wonder whether these self-same teenagers with their transcendental thumbs, you know, they are not also making observations to their friends all the time. I know before you brought this up, but, but it's an interesting idea. Maybe we are harvesting our lives in ways we didn't before because we are in this, at least young people are in this chronic communication with their calloused fingers, you know, on their mobile. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Well, you know, and that, that brings up a, a question, um, something that I've struggled with a bit around the, all of this um, when I watch young people doing this, and I think they can't be present where they are because they're so busy talking to other people somewhere else. Yes. Um, and so how do you reconcile that? Well, I, I don't know that I do um, because so many people live through a screen these days, don't they? Yes. Or they live online. And I think this is a transitional phase. Cheryl, I may be very wrong about this, but I... I also find that when people get together, of course, I live in a town where everybody gets together all the time. Right, right. But there, there is a passionate meeting because there's nothing better than hands-on, sensory, rich, face-to-face. Yes. And uh, it may actually be creating its opposite in people having more intense encounters and need ah. to, for community with each other. So that when people do get together, because they're spending so much time staring at the screen, then that actually does help them heighten that level of connection. Well, you know, high tech almost invariably activates high touch. As for example, we see the enormity of the high technology in our medical systems, in our hospitals. But right. then we see how many health organizations and healthy practices and finding your own uh, healthy agenda has, has really grown up. Similarly, television, you know, for then activated all kinds of teaching, learning communities, people trying to really reach out to each other. So it may be that you need this kind of dynamic polarity between living in, uh, you know, ephemeral electronic space and then living together more intensely. Well, that makes uh, a lot of sense. See, I think all of this is part of a gigantic plot, whether you say it's <laughs> by God or just the natural evolutionary tendency of ourselves, that within the next 50 years, we may very well be moving toward a world civilization with high individuation of culture. Now, I, I don't mean this as a world government, although I think we are gradually coming together, especially because of climate change and the challenge, the unique challenges of our time and the huge populations. I think we are moving toward some kind of very close interdependent planetary structure. And maybe these, you know, what we're seeing is some of the, I won't say the early stages, but they're the middling stages of people reaching out, person to person, that then creates the infrastructure, the very basis of what will be a world civilization, the mind, the world mind taking a walk with itself. I love that, the world mind taking a walk with itself. Well, now, Jean, so let's talk about how we prepare for something like that. What are the skills and capacities we need to develop in ourselves that we need to help each other develop in order to move toward this way of being. Well, as you know, I'm, I'm offering a course online, you know, a seven-week course in which I talk about these called Awakening to Your Life's Purpose, in which I talk about three major keys 
And one key is the development of our skills, our inner human capacities, of which we have so many. A second is the way we enter into community and share together. And a third is the new narrative, the new myth, the new story. Because there's no question we're at the end of one story and not quite at the beginning of the new one. You know, in a sense, we are the people of the parenthesis at the end of one era, not at the yet at the new one. And, you know, that is when the future is seeded and coded, isn't it, Cheryl, in the time of parenthesis? So if I would look at this first key, uh, the human capacities, you know, this is something that I've been involved with for decades now. Um, we, We know that we have... To boil it down to its simplest form, we have these capacities on at least the four essential levels. The first is sensory and physical. And uh, let's just look at the sensory aspect. When I once made a study of 55 of some of the most sustained creative people of our time, and these were research subjects of mine, people who actually came to my home and we worked together, Joseph Campbell, actually for 20 years, Margaret Mead for six years. She actually lived with us often on the last six years of her life. Uh, Bucky Fuller, whose last design, his home I live in right now. Um, anyways, people Jonas Salk, and a lot of people whose names you wouldn't know, but they were profoundly and consistently creative. Well, when I studied them, I found that different as they were, you they had something very similar. They were all fascinated by their own minds. And I don't mean in a narcissistic way, but in a way of finding a level of usefulness because of their excitement of what their minds could do. They, they, they were spelunkers in the caves of their own creativity, and almost all of them had access to levels of internal imagery, which we call interior proprioceptors. So they had activated their inner imagery into a, an incredible civilization of the inner self so they could drop in an idea and it would be zoom taken up by the inner images and it would then lead almost invariably in most cases to solutions because when the mind thinks in inner images inner seeing inner touching inner t- tasting inner sensing inner hearing inner feeling then what happens is that there is a, you, you tap into the creative process that is probably going on all the time, I've come to believe, beneath the surface crust of consciousness. So that this great surface, internal, rather this great internal creativity would find the hooks and eyes, would find the niches through the inner senses and come up with a whole new idea or a new probability or a new novel or a new anthropological understanding. I mean, and, and so, I, you know, when I've studied this, I then found ways of being able to activate it in, uh, you know, in whether my research subjects or people in my courses or whatever. And it's not hard to do, but it really means putting in a whole new, uh, well, not necessarily a whole new, but a, 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 we are rewiring. <laughs> we are repatterning. We are making these vibrant internal connections that shift not just the brain's capacity, but the nature of consciousness to tap into the depths of itself and be creative, pragmatic, and to really begin to have the the glory of internal uh, problem solving. This vision is so filled with hope and so filled with positive and possibility. And I find that such a contrast to what's going on in the media today, the gloom and doom, Mm -hmm. you know, um, how horrible the economy is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So is that 
kind of a letting go? Is that we have to make everything bad in order to move on? Or what do you? What's your perspective on that? Well, let, let me think about this afresh. I mean, part of our brains were cooked in ancient caves. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, uh, and we, we have a very ancient ancestry going back, you know, hundreds of millions of years, and it is still coated in the body. The old dinosaur, in a sense, is still there uh, in the older parts of the brain, which have to do with our protection, our security, which is fine when you're crossing the street or you're just being you're just careful about yourself, but it's terrible when something very minor comes along and zoom, you know, the body's chemicals respond with as if you are facing the woolly mastodon, you know, um, part of that is is what the uh, the media plays on this archaic ancient brain that responds with focus, attention, fear, engagement, and so that's why the news looks the way it is. We're still fighting off the woolly mastodon, right? <laughs> you know, right. And then a- another aspect, of course, is it that. Um, the lure of becoming, the positive images, the positive possibilities are not attended to by the brain-body-mind system as she is constructed, as, as well as they will attend to the danger. And that's right. also part of our thing. I mean, uh, when, when you really think over your life, now I'm not talking about you, I'm just talking in general to the audience here, and you say, where do you put your attention? Is it over the things you fear, uh, the dread, the remembrance of the hot spots of your life? Or just look at it, how much is it toward the positive things? Now, right. this is where we have conscious choice. And most people simply do not put their minds into the positive things because of this part of it is our wiring. Now, great nature, great evolution, and her infinite wisdom uh, gave us a, a kind of unfinished body-mind that has the capacity to do some of the final finishing up t- touches, of which pos- part of it is the positive creative mind. Again, when I have studied these people who have made extraordinary positive changes, I mean, a very close friend of mine is Deepak Chopra. Deepak Chopra is one of the most successful people I ever saw in my life. I mean, along with Margaret Mead, good things happen to him all the time. Right. And I once asked Margaret Mead, I, I've never seen anybody so lucky. She said, yes, I am blessed. I said, why are you so blessed? She says, because I expect to be. Well, Deepak uh-huh. is of the same order. Uh, he has a whole cosmology and a, a, a kind of physics of and metaphysics of consciousness, which believes that his 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 beingness has infinite capacities to tune into the great rising of 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 new possibilities, and he believes that he believes it absolutely. And I could mention another half a dozen people I know who are sure. like that, but sure. they have rewired their brain mind system. They really have by their power of choice about where they put their attention and about how what they're going to do about it. So, you know, the, the fact is, I mean, I really believe that consciousness is universal and that you can tune into the great patterns of consciousness. It isn't something, the brain does not secrete thought the way the liver secretes bile, you know. I think that we are embedded in a huge consciousness field, but we can have the hooks and eyes to attach ourselves to this vast treasure house of consciousness itself as well as the, the, the genius of our own inner capacities 
but it does take conscious choice. So what I try to do in a lot of my books, and of course in this seven-week course and other things I'm offering, is showing people really how to do it. And how to, to do, do that. Yeah. Right. You know, um, we speak to a lot of leaders, and in my executive coaching practice, I work with yes. CEOs and senior leaders. Yes. And I know you have too. And I, oh, after yeah. this break, we're <laughs> going to go to break. But when we come back, I'd like you to talk a bit about how you help leaders touch that in themselves and really evolve in different ways. Okay. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Well, welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito, our special guest today, Dr. Jean Houston. Jean, in our last segment, um, we were talking about how human beings can position themselves for huge possibility in their lives. And, uh, you know, I know that um, leaders are a specific group of people who struggle, I think, with this. They're trying to inspire while they're trying to mitigate risk. And, you know, all over the world, no matter what, what you're leading, um, I think leaders, CEOs, and leaders in organizations, people who are leading NGOs, people who are leaders in indigenous um, communities, you know, they all face some similar challenges. I know you've done some work with leaders around the world. Talk to us about some of that and some of the challenges you have and, and some of the ways that you actually get them to see some of this. Well, I think, you know, at first, one of the things I noticed about too many leaders is that, and this is around the world, that many were trained to be white males of the year 1953. Uh-huh. You know, they, they were trained for a different time, a different era, a different set of challenges. And we're not trained for the enormous complexity and chronic challenges and the huge whole system shifts of our time. So part of my job was to uh, help them not only understand 
the, not just the complexity of the challenges, but also the opportunities, but the opportunities for the time to think in, in very different ways and to come up with very different kinds of solutions, solutions that are embedded in the fact that of interconnectivity of the world. This required an inward shift as well. One had to essentially grow the interconnectivity between their mind, their body, their spirit. So, yes, I would train them in extending their physical and uh, psychological potentials and capacities. Yes, I would teach them to think in very different ways. And, yes, I would have them open up to a mythic narrative. Now, by myth, I don't mean superstition. I'm using it in the way that Joseph Campbell used it. A myth is something that is part of the coded DNA of the human psyche. It gives us the rest of the story. A lot of these leaders don't have the larger story. They just don't because they are just faced with one darn thing after another, the serial monotony of awfulness. (laughs) 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 So you have to inspire them to a different vision, a different story. Now, one of the ways I do this in whole cultures where I've sent, like Albania, you know, which is really a very difficult, very highly challenged country, is you find the core story. Find what is the core story, and then weave these processes of human development along the lines of the core story. So what am I doing with leadership in Albania? The core story I found, one that was very ancient, quite marvelous, the famous Seven Brothers, a kingdom is uh, that it was a beneficent, beautiful kingdom, a wonderful king, queen, <clears throat> beautiful princess, naturally a demon is going to grab her. And this related, of course, to the terrible history of Albania, which was grabbed by a tyrannical, horrible person. Anyway, the the girl is stolen by the demon, and the, the king and queen say, if anybody can save her and find her and bring her back and she agrees, they can marry. Well, seven noble brothers show up. Now, this allowed us to look at the whole plenum of human capacities. The first noble brother is a high sensate. He can hear anything. And indeed, he hears with a demon is snoring under, under the earth. This allowed us to increase, use this example to increase our sensory capacities, which is what we did. And then the second noble brother can open up the earth anywhere. Well, this allowed us to open up many, many levels of ourselves, as well as the key levels in the the geography and the psychology and the possibilities of Albania. Okay? The third noble brother could steal anything away. This allowed us, he steals the princess away, and this allowed us to really get at the essence of who we are and what was there for the culture and how we could really find the deep, higher guidance that lies within each one of us. The fourth noble brother could could hurl anything a long distance, and he hurled the demon's uh, magical shoe that allowed him to travel very quickly. And he grabs the shoe, throws it away. This allowed us to look at what are our shadows that we're not dealing with, both in ourselves and in the community. The fifth noble brother could build um, a magnificent castle in a very short period of time, impregnable castle, where everybody goes in and gets protected. This allowed us to build up all kinds of new social structures that the country needed, as well as structures within ourselves that would allow us to flourish. Okay, and of course, unfortunately, the demon always comes along and says, please, 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 I, I don't need to take her away. Just let me see her this one last time. They open up a shake, wrong, whoom, he shapeshifts and he grabs the girl and goes flying off. 
And the sixth noble brother is a great marksman, a tremendous intentionality and focus, and he shoots the demon out of the sky who falls and probably goes to demon hospital. But, the, the, but this allowed us to create the genius, the art and science of focus and intentionality, holding and acting upon and becoming successful in our intentions and our creations. The seventh noble brother, the youngest and handsomest, can catch anything that falls, and of course he catches the falling princess, and this allowed it, they live happily after or something or other like that, and this allowed us to create all kinds of new plans for generative the future, and it had a tremendous effect in Albania. But this is wow. one of the ways I work. You see so so you, you took this story, <laughs> and with each one of the actions of the noble brothers, you were able to help them reinterpret. That's right. And uh-huh. not just reinterpret, but also actualize. It allowed me to train them in greater usefulness of their body, minds, and psyches, you see. So that one of the things that we might build in terms of, let's say, when we did the, the, the one who opens up the different, um, he opens up the earth, part of what is lies in the earth of ourselves is something that is way beyond ego, the psychological level. We all have many, many, many different persona, many different persona, but we insist on thinking that ego, which is a fairly Western invention, you know, is what we are, and it isn't. It's just what one image among what we are. So, for example, I, I give an example that I enjoy. I hate to write. Jean hates to write. But somehow I have 26, soon to be 27 books published and a great many unpublished books. Now, how does this happen? I happen to have a persona in me that is very, very strong, and it is a cook. I am a very serious cook. I do two things well in my life, Cheryl. I can cook, and I can talk to any dog, and those are my, <laughs> my great talents. But, but as a cook, I literally have no blocks at all. None. None. And uh, I'm in a state of what I call galloping chutzpah when it comes to cooking. But as a writer, I am totally phobic and write and blocked. So what do I do? I don't write as Jean, Jean the local. I write as Jean the cook. And so oh. I think, yeah, I literally, as a cook, totally open, very free, you know, creative. I stir in a melange of ideas. I add the seasonings of different kinds of associations. And I can really write but I cannot write in terms of my local personality. So what I train people to do is to find many, many uh, different persona, we call them persona, uh, personalities, structures within themselves. Some are already highly developed, like my cook was, and some may be just uh, slightly developed, you know. But then I help them develop these other persona and then take these other persona with their remarkable skills or, or at least senses of their skills to bear upon uh, whatever is the issue that they want to deal with, whether it's writing, whether it's building a project, whether it's leadership, whatever you have. That's fascinating. So, you know, it make, reminds me of um, a controversy that you were involved in many oh, years ago. Oh, you're going to bring that one up. With, well, you know, I think people are so curious. Okay. Because, you want to, you know, yes, with I Hillary with... Clinton, right? Yeah. And, and, and with Hillary, um, she was in the process of writing It Takes a Village. I was helping her and, write a book called It Takes a Village, yes. Yes. And, um, yes. And, and during that, you helped her to think of a different way to approach some of this, and and then somehow it got completely misinterpreted in the media and became a 
firestorm. But but tell me what about happened, what, yeah, what what happened is that we were I was helping her write this book. It was really turned out to be quite a nice book. Yeah. And at one point, she was so tired. She had so many jobs, and I had to get her to focus because we had finished this uh-huh. chapter. And I said, Hillary, come on, you're not talking to me. Who would you have loved to talk to? She said, Eleanor Roosevelt. And that that was a bond between us, because when I was 16, I had known Eleanor Roosevelt, because uh, she, Eleanor Roosevelt was interested in New York City, gathering we who were uh, the presidents of our high schools, and I was one of them, uh, to get us interested in international affairs, international relations, the UN. So I had gotten to know Mrs. Roosevelt fairly well over a period of six, seven, eight meetings. Um, and, and Hillary really appreciated that because this was, was one of her models, was Eleanor Roosevelt. I said, well, talk to Eleanor Roosevelt. What would you say to her about making a better world for children? She said, well, I think Mrs. Roosevelt would say this, and then I would say that. That's all there was to it. It was a role-playing game, and it seemed to be reasonably or moderately helpful and uh, to really see things in different ways. That's all there was. And a famous reporter got hold of it and went to town with it. And before you know it, they created a character. They created something that didn't happen, like a right. seance in the White House. And I was on the front page of every newspaper in the world with, uh, you know, about 95% distortion. You know, So that's one of the issues of that kind of thing. Well, and, you know, I think that you're not alone in that people who are powerful influencers, people who think outside of the box, shall we call it, Mm -hmm. um, are often attacked by those who either want to take advantage of that or who are afraid of that kind of... of And so, you know, you must work with a lot of people who are in leadership, who are in the public eye, who have, you know, the the risk is there. And so, you know, how do you help them deal with that? Well, one of the things... uh, that happened to me, uh, let me tell my own story about this, because I rarely tell this story. Um, Yeah, I I overnight lost about half of my professional life because of, not because of what I did with Mrs. Clinton, but because of the uh, the story that people made up, you know, right in the White House. And uh, so what did I do? I said, well, this is an opportunity to do something totally different. And here I was working, having been working with, you know, similar types of people all over the world. And I stopped all that. I almost had to because of the nonsense. And I went to work with Alzheimer's, people with Alzheimer's. And this was perhaps one of the most important things that I have ever done in my whole life. Because as I worked with people with Alzheimer's, I, I knew something else was going on. And it had to do with singing, actually. And I would work with somebody who had been born, you know, he was probably 90 years old. And I would sing to him a song that he had heard, perhaps as a baby. Hushabye, don't you cry, go to sleepy little baby. Then I might go to something that he would heard a few years later. Every little movement has a meaning. All So literally going up year by year, you know, to about the time he would have been in his 50s. And it was almost around then that many of these people, not all by any means, but many, would start to sing with me. And we would sing, the bells are ringing for me and my girl, you know, things like that. And we would also dance a little bit. And I would then, we would be making such deep 
kind of spiritual contact that I might sing to them, where have you been and what have you been doing? And they might sing back to me, telling me, and this happened too often, Cheryl, telling me about these tremendous adventures they were involved in, in these great relationships and tremendous landscapes. And I mean, it, it, it happened too often. It was as if they had moved to another part of their mind. And occasionally, occasionally, not often, but occasionally, one of them would become very lucid and talk to me about how when they were in this world, the world they used to know, things were very foggy. But when they were in their other world, everything was quite wonderful. And so I taught many nurses on how to do this, and many, some have written, you know, papers about these kinds of things. But so the fact that what we think of as a pathology, these people may have been moving in their minds to the quantum universe, to the mythological realm, or what have you, but they were having their own lives. Whereas we, who tend to, in our medical professions, pathologize, they could not mythologize and could not then create this community of music and dance and singing. And if I ever did anything of any use in the world, that was it. So one of the things that I do is I help people out of their time of um, being, you know, trashed or put down or whatever you want to call it, to be able to go deeper in their mind and find things in their own creative spirits that they really want to do and to be of real help. Or, for example, in a number of cases with various leaders, I may actually have them go out among the people in an anonymous way and do real things and work with people in the farms or wherever they are uh, and do things that are hands-on, sensory-rich, and that tends to be restorative. That is so beautiful because you take something that seems so devastating do experience devastation and turn it into what's possible from this point. Yes. And you have demonstrated that yourself. So not only are you teaching this, but you have lived this. Of course, there's nothing more powerful than having had that experience. Jean, we are going to take a break and back. We'll talk more about this. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. Our very special guest today, Dr. Jean. Jean, it's been just a plethora of wisdom coming from you in this last couple of segments. And, you know, we talked about the issue of leaders not being trained for this time. They were trained for a different time. And, and say that, you know, what the big difference is, is that the times now are so complex, so much different than Talk to us about that complexity. Well, it's true, Cheryl. You know, today looks nothing like yesterday and will look nothing like tomorrow. Um, Never before in history have there been so many changes, such an acceleration of change. We were, most of us were really uh, over a certain age, say 25, 30, uh, were trained for a different era. And how do you really begin to bring a different kind of mind space into a world in which the change is so accelerating? And so this has really been part of of my issues. I mean, you look at the huge issues of our time, of which the major one is the ecological one, not just uh, the uh, climate change, but the fact that we can no longer continue to live polluting our atmosphere, polluting the world, because, uh, you know, we will not have that world that will sustain us. Uh, So we are now the directors of a world that up till fairly recently was mostly directing us. How do we prepare ourselves for such times? Now, there are there is a lot of good news on the horizon. One of this, of course, one of these is, is something that I think is the single most important event of the last 5,000 years, which is the rise of women, slowly but surely, and it is happening everywhere, the rise of women to full partnership with men in the whole domain of human affairs. Because women constitutionally, for the most part, there's great variations, of course, but there's a different kind of thinking. The emphasis is on the process of getting things done, not the product. It's on relationships, how things develop, cohere, grow. It's, It's a kind of mindset in which the subjective is as important as the objective. It is one in which you really discover the rising tide of of connectivity, of feelings, of of seeing whole processes rather than as a singular linear path. Uh, it is narrative and circular and empathic rather than as linear and objective. Well, this is the mind that is deeply needed for our time. It just is. <laughs> and I think it's one of the reasons why the very fact that the recent that button of history has been hit in the last 20, 30 years, and women are essential to these whole new ways of being. Well, so, seems, sorry to interrupt. It seems yes, like women, women are coming forward a whole lot in the political scheme of things. Well, it's uh, all over the world, more so around the world, by the way, than in the United States. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah. It's amazing how how few are in Congress, whereas you go to, you know, through Europe and you find it's a very different story altogether, or even parts of Asia, the way women are rising everywhere. You also have the rise of the global south. Global south means China, India, Brazil, 
and this is and the 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 gradual diminution of the traditional global north europe etc and i think the, the world is literally shifting on its psychological and metaphysical axis and when you with all these changes um i we have to train ourselves for this kind of extension this kind of expansion which we've never ever had to do before as far as we know in human history and that's one thing i try I certainly try in my own way to to um to do so for example i've worked now in 108 countries i think i told you when i go into a country let's say i'm going into southern india i do not go in as an american i am an american there's no way getting around it i mean i'm much taller i mean i'm 511 and many of these people are scarcely above 5 feet <laughs> so right right that's part of the problem but i do wear a sari Badly, and the little lady said, "Oh, sister, you look absolutely terrible. Let us fix you. You look terrible." <laughs> we, we are already engaged, you know, in a kind of funny communal event of trying to make me look right. And I learn. I always learn five hundred thousand words of the language, and uh, and then I might also go. I mean, if if they really don't speak English, which is often true. And then I learn their songs and their dances, and above all, I learn their jokes. It's very important to learn people's jokes, you know, and the clean jokes. You don't dare do one of the naughty yeah. jokes. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and then you cross the great divide of otherness. And I think this is something that is happening. I mean, in the States, and well, your program goes all over the world, but often... We are in a fusion thing. There's fusion food. And by food, I know you're in San Francisco. And I don't mean that restaurant that used to be in San Francisco. It was was Jewish, Chinese. It was called the Genghis Cohen, I think. But, I mean, the fusion in food, the fusion in music, the fusion in literature. I mean, clearly, as I said, the world mind is not only taking a walk with itself. It's in this strange, marvelous, uh, multicultural, mitosis that is giving us the basis of a whole new kind of mind. We have to be educated for that. We cannot be educated in the insular ways that we have been because we are crossing the great divide of otherness. So that is so critical in our time. I find these things wonderful. I find the rise of volunteer organizations. There are literally millions of volunteer organizations, most by the which are led by women of a certain age, which is sort of interesting. Post-menopausal jazz, uh, post-menopausal uh, uh, zest is no mere metaphor, you know. And so I'd say 70 to 80 percent of people who are really taking the initiatives, leading these new things around the world, and that's the dirty little fact we sometimes talk about in UN-type meetings, are women. Are women. Now, that doesn't mean there is not terrible backlash, because there is terrible, terrible. And most people read only about the backlash. They're not aware of this incredible spectrum of women taking incredible responsibility all over the world. Well, and, you know, that really speaks to what you talked about at the beginning of our show, is how we gravitate toward what doesn't work rather than what yeah. is working, in, even in the media. We know what we see, this here. And so rather than the stories of grand success that many women are having all over the world, large and small successes, um, we hear the stories about what's falling apart or, you know, was rejected. And so retraining ourselves to look for those possibilities, to look for those successes is part of what you talk about in your course, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose. 
And, you know, and I know that um, you have one coming up very soon. Um, and the website is awakenyourpurposecourse.com. And talk a little bit about this and, and how you take people through this. You, you did a little bit at the beginning of the show. You know, give us a little well, I take them, I, I, I train them in very basic skills. And I train them in skills that give them a much more flexible, extend, much more flexible, aware body. I train them in skills that allow them to activate their sensory images. I train them in ways of tapping into the modalities of time so that they can take several minutes of clock time equal subjectively to all the time they need and have experiences, trainings, rehearsals, skill sets uh, greatly improved in very short periods of time. I, I train them to tap into the incredible story base of their lives so that they can literally create and choose a new story, ways of tapping into the spiritual domains of themselves. And then, of course, all of this is done in community. So we have forums. I'm on live uh, every week. I'm on live for two, almost two hours, interacting with them as well as in the, the regular recorded course. And uh, they, they interact with me. They send me letters. I inter- we, they have a forum in which they join communities. They have an enormous amount of uh, added material. All the lectures are also then given to them, transcribed, so they have things to look at. I mean, it's a tremendous course. I mean, it's a, uh, I, I myself am very, very pleased with it. It's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And it's lots of fun, and it's very jolly and, uh, and very warm. Well, it's funny, you, too. you do have a way of bringing humor to almost everything. I mean, I, that was one of the very first things I noticed many years ago when I became aware of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a young person in uh, the, this field of human development and leadership development, uh, you were one of the first people who I heard say, why is everybody so serious? You know, let's just have some fun with this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be terrible. And so I love that you, you bring that sense of humor along with us as we are moving through learning. Well, I'm the daughter of a very funny man. (laughs) Yes. When when I remember my childhood, there's often peals of laughter that are there of of the undercurrent of memory. And things are funny. I mean, it is the absurd. We yes. we are living in these wildly absurd times. I wonder whether the gods are laughing. You know, it's a, yes, yes. And if you do not, you know, people have asked me, who are the most, you've known so many people, who are the most intelligent people you've ever met? And I have to say comedians. Because what they do is they're always taking divided and distinguished worlds and putting them together into a joke or into something that stuns the mind into ah, ah, and we start and from the ah, ah, we go ah, 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 and it moves us to a new plane. So one of the things I try to do, I, I know in the extension of this course, which is also coming up uh, called Your Supreme Destiny, is looking at the power of laughter. I'm finishing a book right now, be out at the end of this year or maybe early next year, called The Wizard of Us. And, oh. in, it, and in it, I'm actually taking um, uh, the, the story of The Wizard of Oz and using it as the template of a totally radical new reconsideration of who we are and what we yet may be. Because I, oh. I think it's one of the core American stories of all time, you know. It absolutely is. Huh. And some of the um, meaning behind that, which most people are not aware of, is pretty powerful. And I'm sure that you 
or bring some of that out in your new book, Jean, Writing as the Cook. <laughs> writing That's right. That's the right. <laughs> right? Yeah. How, how fun. How great. So, Jean, this is just amazing. We only have a couple of minutes left. Um, So what is your, what are your sentiments about, you know, what do we all need to take away from this conversation? What do we all need to take away from this conversation? Well, that, I would say you are more. You are more than you pretend to be. You are more than what most eyes can see. You are more than all your history. I once wrote a song about this. Arise, become awake with every breath you take. The God within will wake to be. We are so much more. And we were born into the times in which it is kind of required of us. It's part of our required humanity that we really rise to the occasion, tap into the incredible potentials that we all have so that we can bring this richness to bear upon our world and time. Now, I, I, is it, this course contains it, my books, but also if people are interested, they can go to my website, Jean Houston, Houston spelled as in Texas, jeanhouston.com, and you'll find a lot of different opportunities for, for learning. Also, I, I talked about uh, my work around the world because I train people for this kind of work. It's called social artistry, and that's the Jean Houston Foundation dot org, JeanHoustonFoundation dot org, and there is you learn about what we, how we train people for this kind of work in transforming society. But JeanHouston dot com is my website. JeanHoustonFoundation dot org is the social artistry, and of course, for the course, it is called Awakening Your Life Purpose Course. Or and the, your purpose the, course is that what it's called these days? <laughs> the website for the Awakening Your Life's Purpose course yeah. is awakenyourpurposecourse.com. Awakenyourpurposecourse.com. And my website is jeanhouston.com. Uh, Jean, thank you so much. We are thank you filled so much. with gratitude that you were here with us today. It was just a privilege and an honor to have It was just you. delightful to talk with you, Cheryl. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody out there who's listening. Let's stay in touch. And when you finish your book, The Weird Sort of Us, we're going to have to have you back. All right. Tell us all about it. I will indeed. All right. Thank you. Thank you again. And remember, everyone, to think big, because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. 
visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 